Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Did you see the game on Sky? Tim Sherwood, before the game, uh, just dropping into conversation once again for the 100th time that he was the man who gave Harry Kane his first opportunity. It's like a bloody vegan, he won't shut up about it. It is Thursday, which means it's time for the front with me, Adam Boltwood, the one and only Chris Hennage. Good evening. And of course, Nico Morales too. How you doing? Guys, it's good to be back after a very busy Christmas and New Year period. Hope all of our listeners had a fantastic New Year. Uh, Nico, did you have a good festive period? Yeah, had a few drinks on New Year's, you know. Can't go wrong with that. Any kebabs? No. No. <laughs> Right. No kebabs. It's the time I went corporate. I went to McDonald's. So um, that's what that's what we were gonna do. Uh, but you decided to take me to that sketchy kebab shop. Um, you gotta move on, Nico. You gotta move on. Uh, Chris, how was your New Year? Good. Had a wonderful kebab. I love it. No better way to celebrate and ring in the New Year than a, than a wonderful kebab. We can do no harm. Uh, anyway, guys, let's talk about the football. A lot of football to talk about, not least of which Tottenham's one-all draw of West Ham at Wembley tonight. Another draw in a big game at the Emirates last night between Arsenal and Chelsea at one of the most entertaining games of the season. We'll also be talking about Mark Hughes, who is still somehow clinging on to his job at Stoke. And I think some transfer chat is in order in part two with the January transfer window well and truly open. We have to start with Spurs, though. Once again, a frustrating game at Wembley from Mauricio Pochettino's side, struggling not for the first time this season to break down a side who came and sat deep at Spurs' temporary home. A drab first half followed up by a pretty entertaining second half, not least because of the quality of the goals scored. Obiang with an absolute scream out of nowhere with West Ham's first shot on target after Spurs had failed to take any of their previous 25 shots. They ended with 31 shots overall in this game. Luckily, Heung-Min Son scoring one of them with a fantastic goal of his own. But once again, a frustrating match at Wembley for Spurs. Nico, it's the fourth Premier League match this season in which Spurs have had at least 24 shots. And all of them, funnily enough, have ended in draws against Burnley, Swansea, West Brom and West Ham. Spurs finding it so difficult against a team who, for lack of a better term, park the bus at Wembley, Nico. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird one. Obviously, um, 
Spurs are creating a ton of chances. We can look at something like expected goals to, to kind of uh, tell us whether Spurs are actually creating chances or if they're just taking kind of pot shots. And mm-hmm. in the majority of those games, I think that, that I looked at the metrics, um, they were creating some really good chances. And I think the, the, it's probably more similar maybe to the situation that Guardiola experienced last year. Manchester City were on the... the uh, I guess on lucky side of, of a couple of games like that where they did create a ton of chances, but then they did, you know, concede on the very first shot of it or the very first, uh, very first couple of shots um, that the opposition took. And I think the approach that he took after that was just to continue creating chances and to create so many chances that it, it would be impossible not to finish that. And I think, unfortunately for Tottenham, they just don't have maybe the monetary budget to do that as well as the players right now. So, while they've been on the unlucky side of of some of some you know variants this season, you know I'm sure they have, have they have been on the lucky side of of variants in the past. So I don't necessarily think it's a question as to what they're doing wrong. It's just you know do they need to create more chances? Probably probably so. But are they creating enough chances to win the majority of those games and not concede in those in those games, especially today? Mm. Um, yes. So I mean that's that's why we watch the game. We watch it for the unpredictability. As much as we like to you know pour our hearts and minds into these metrics it's never going to be able to predict the the uh the obiangs of the world are they mm. it's, it's difficult i think spurs are unlucky in a sense but at the same time they also didn't quite do enough or create enough uh, clear-cut chances to say that they wholeheartedly deserve the win i mean in terms of spurs attack though chris i mean i know it's chris actually went to see star wars today he didn't actually watch the game so i'm going to talk a little bit more generally, but... Um, I saw a different battle between good and evil. Yeah, very much so. Uh, in, in terms of Spurs' attack, it does feel like it's lacking a certain dimension. It's lacking an option, uh, aside from Son, someone who can offer pace and someone who can get in behind the defence. I, I think so. The, the thing is, this is not the first time that um, that Pochettino has, has talked about this need for a, a player that can thrive in one-on-ones. Um I think it's why they were linked to Zahar. I think it's why they've looked at um, Riyad Mahrez a little bit as well. I actually wrote a piece linking them to Richarlison for that same reason. Um, and he has often uh, lamented the absence of Lamella because for him, he is the player that, that can often provide that. I think obviously at the same time, you don't want to limit yourself to just one member of the squad that can provide that. Um I think that is the issue, is that when you bunker in against Spurs, it does kind of limit them a bit because Son has pace, Son is quick, but I don't think he's someone that beats players. I don't think he's someone that commits players in the same way that, say, Mares or Zahar does. The difficulty, I think, for Spurs is that to sign that kind of player, you're talking about Zahar or Mares, you're going to be, I would say, stumping up about £50 million. Um, and that's a lot to, to bring in. Um, for for one player, and I think almost it goes against the the mentality or the the methodology of, of Spurs in the transfer market. Um, I'd imagine that would cost a significant amount in wages as well. And obviously, we've talked before about the structure that they've got financially. So then I start to look inwards and say, well, okay, you have Marcus Edwards, who's very good on the ball. Uh, Keenan Bennett, who scored the other night for uh, the under twenty threes. Admittedly, I think they lost five or six one. But he is another player that likes to dribble, that likes to uh, commit players that could be of interest to Pochettino. It's just a very big ask to put someone like that in. I think when he signed Sissoko, I think when he signed Nkudu, 
Um, and even Nji, who is obviously now back in, in Marseille, I think he saw those players as, as that type of player. Um, but I think this is the, the one thing about Spurs is that while they are a big club and they are alongside the likes of Liverpool and City, Man United, etc., they're really the only big club that doesn't really operate like a big club financially. Um, and I think we're seeing one of the consequences or drawbacks of, of that play itself out here. Well, Spurs did drop 30 big ones, Chris, on Musa Zizoko, who came in for some criticism. Uh, Mauricio Pochettino coming under some criticism himself, uh, not only for the team selection, which included Suzoko starting in midfield, but also for, for making subs too late. Wanyama and Lamella only introduced after Obiang had scored the opener with Wanyama replacing Suzoko uh, on the former Newcastle player. I mean, it, it seems to be a complete mystery as to why Pochettino... Of course, over this busy Christmas period, there needs to be rotation. But most Spurs fans finding it mystifying as to why he continually starts games this season, especially with Wanyama recently back now. Ultimately, I think um, he keeps playing because he has to keep playing. That's that's the the only reason I can think so. Um, he costs thirty million, and I think Pochettino sees a potential because the thing is, Sissoko has very good acceleration pace over. Um, I would say five to ten yards and I think this is and I've said this before this is why I think he signed him is because he thought well you know what he has the raw physical assets that I'm looking for in this player I can coach um, the the more tactical elements into him he talked about wanting a player who could run him behind the, the problem is is at an age I would argue where he's not going to make that development he's not going to to improve that drastically in those areas and at the same time, he's not the greatest technically. He's very good for a team that has a lot of open space to play into. I think if you put him on that West Ham team tonight and he gets to play from their perspective where you're sitting deep, you're holding, you're waiting for your opposition to essentially create a space for you, he looks significantly better. And I think this is <clears throat> excuse me, I think this is one of the pitfalls that some teams fall into, is they look at a player like Sissoko and say, you know what, he'd be great, he would improve us a lot. The truth is, he wouldn't because he doesn't fit into the kind of game that you want to play. And I think some teams fail to actually analyse whether signing the player is good for them because of the style that they play. It's easy to say that, that someone like Sissoko can be coached, but you have to look at, well, really, can he? Has he developed significantly since his days at Toulouse? And the truth is, he, he hasn't. That's why Newcastle had him in the first place. That's why Juventus opted not to sign him when they had the opportunity, when they were vying for his signature with with uh, Newcastle. And I think you look at someone, as we've talked about, like Mares or Zahar, that to me is someone who, again, looks a little bit better. To, to briefly reference analytics for a second, there's a, a stat called percentage, uh, possession usage, excuse me, that um, I had seen used re relative to uh, Memphis Depay and Jeannie Vijnaldum when they were at PSV. And I would be very curious to see what the possession usage stats are for Mares and Zaha, which essentially to condense it, it's how often the um, the attack finishes with them, be it through a pass or a shot or whatever, because I think that could possibly give you an indication as to whether they're actually effective with the ball, because that's ultimately what you want as well. You want someone who is, is effective with the ball. They're not someone who needs dozens of more chances compared to, say, Son or Lamella to actually produce something. Somehow he's got 58 appearances for Spurs, which is which is mystifying. I can only think Pochettino is, is really trying to put him in that shop window 
for January now. Um, but speaking of uh, effective players, I mean, Human Son again scored a fantastic goal tonight. Uh, an increasingly important player for Spurs, Nico. He finished last season with 21 goals, 14 of them in the league. Um, he's been involved in 12 goals in his last nine games in all competitions at Wembley as well. As we mentioned earlier, he brings directness, he brings pace, and he's a real asset against defensive opponents like West Ham, as we saw tonight. Yeah, I think he's a very you know versatile player. Like Chris mentioned, maybe he's not the out-and-out winger that, that Spurs kind of need in certain situations, but he can certainly operate in that role in some regard. But at the same time, he's a very good finisher. He can almost operate as like a secondary striker or and in sort of a two-man striker system. He can be very proficient. Um, and I think given there was a really interesting article written by Nathan Ashley Clark, which is a Spurs tactics writer, um, talking about fitness periodization for Spurs. And it talked about... Um, just the general concept of uh, sports periodization in terms of like uh, the application in professional sports, um, and he it was it was an interesting thing to, to 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 read about. So I think if we want to delve more into the topic of why certain players are playing for for Tottenham right now, including Klang Minson, um, it's a really good article to read. So yeah, just quick plug. Overall then, yeah, a frustrating result tonight for Spurs. The draw means they have nine points fewer this season than they managed against the equivalent 22 opponents last season. And all of those nine points dropped have come from results in the 11 home matches played so far. So, uh, yeah, frustrating. But at the end of the day, three wins and one draw. Two points dropped in total over the Christmas period. Got to be pretty happy about that. Um, but moving swiftly on to another draw, uh, a more entertaining game, I think it's fair to say. Arsenal to Chelsea to last night. So many chances, 33 in total. Chris calls for concern for both managers in a defensive sense, or is this a case of, you know, the mental and physical fatigue after another busy Christmas period leading to such a, such an open game? Uh, that's a good question. I think, I think there was a, a certain element of Arsenal that needed to come out and be proactive. Um, because I think they're almost fighting for a sense of, of legitimacy this season in terms of being part of the, the league because they're nowhere near the title race. And I think if if they were to win the FA Cup again, it, it, it becomes almost irrelevant to them because they've done it already. There's nothing really gained there. You know, There's no actual ground made there. And so they're almost fighting for pride already, which sounds bizarre to say in, in early January. Um, but I think at the same time, a lot of those players, when they needed to show up in these kind of games, have been left wanting. And and so they're looking almost to seize their chance. Um, for Chelsea, I think it's, it's a slightly different situation because they are now coming off the back of a Premier League title win. And they're not so much fighting for legitimacy as fighting to prove that they were legitimate last season and that they, there was more to them than fortune that got them the Premier League title. Um, and I think the maintenance of success for Chelsea is a lot harder this season because of the fact that their rivals have made such significant jumps behind them and the fact, as we know, Conte is not great at managing competitions. He very much coaches with his foot pressed firmly on the pedal. And that's something that Allegri changed when he came into Juventus and, and consequently had a significant impact and got them to two Champions League finals not long after Conte left. Um, I think this is one of those moments where you look at that uh, aspect of Conte's makeup and say, yeah, maybe with a bit more 
not pragmatism because I think he has a lot of tactical pragmatism, but game management perhaps and knowing when you can maybe just let the you know the the coursing begin for a second or two. Um, does Chelsea a few more favours? Um, I know he's still bemoaning the lack of depth in his squad, which certain extent I can appreciate but I think honestly Chelsea have reached a stage where they have to bring in members from their youth team and, and this lone army that they've spent a few years rearing like Christensen they need more to follow on from him um, but I think that's a, a lame excuse for the situation if I'm if I'm very honest mm, I find it hard to have too much sympathy for Conte given his handling of the Diego Costa situation of course, uh, the comparison between Costa and Morata not helped by the fact Costa scored on his Atletico Madrid debut upon his return to the club on the very same night. Alvaro and Morata was having these struggles, but surely Conte could have handled that situation so much better. At the very least, he could have used a strike of the qualities of Costa for half a season before offloading him in January as he seemed determined to do. Well, I think, I think you two are spot on with that i mean it's difficult for both antonio conte and jose Mourinho when they're you know they're they're complaining about player depth or maybe not having the backing from whoever when they clearly do and with conte it's a specific situation where he if he doesn't get along with a certain player regardless of that player's quality then they're not going to take part in the team and they're not going to have a significant role in his you know in the team that he's coaching and you know, you can say that okay, maybe this player doesn't have the specific attitude that is that is right for the team, and maybe it doesn't gel. Um, and he's had a lot of success in 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 the teams that everybody has sort of been on board with his his mantras and his philosophy. But at the same time, if you are you know uh, going into a second season with Chelsea, where you know the first season you were very lucky to not suffer you know a major injury to any one of those players that you considered essential and only had a squad of a certain amount of players and part of the reason that they were so successful because of that was because they weren't participating in the Champions League now in your second season you're not able to get along with enough players to have uh, adequate rotation and then you're blaming that on somebody else or some other factor like you guys are saying it's very difficult to feel um, sorry for him in that situation because he simply needs to get along better with certain players in order to have more involvement, more rotation. So yeah, can't yeah. help but feel he's making the same mistake with David Luiz as well, who potentially could be leaving in January. Um, we'll come on to who they could potentially be adding themselves in this transfer window a little later on. But for now, we do need to talk about Alvaro Morata, Chris. Um, I mean, I've never seen a striker, a club the size of Chelsea, spurn so many glorious chances in one match. In fact, who scored a claiming that his free clear-cut chances was the most missed by any player in the Premier League this season? I mean, uh, what's going on? Is he short of confidence? Is he fatigued, as Antonio Conte has suggested? Or... You know, to take the harsh views, he's simply not good enough at this level. It's only two league goals since September for Morata now. Yeah, the, the, the difficulty Morata has, it, it's very similar, I find, to someone who's tagged as a super sub. Because if you come off the bench and perform, you almost reaffirm your situation. Whereas if you don't perform, you slip down the, the order. In the case of Morata... He was billed as someone that maybe didn't have the mentality for this. There was questions about that at Juventus. I think it was Gigi Buffon who had a very frank talk with him. And so now every chance he misses, you could argue a little bit like Higuain as well, every big chance he misses is a reaffirmment of that, of that um, perception, whether it's true or not. He could go out at the weekend or whenever, you know, the next place in Man United or someone and score a big goal. But there will still be a question every time he misses a chance against a big team. Um, 
I think we we have to remember with him that while he has played for some some very big clubs and he has achieved a good amount already in his career, he is still 25. Um, and I think there's an element of instant gratification with, with us these days in football. Realistically, I think a player hits their peak around 27, 28. So there's a little bit of time for him to go through that. I have reservations personally if he can burst through that ceiling because it is a big ask. It's, it's an element of um, mentality first and foremost and killer instinct. And in Real Madrid, his role actually was a bit more of a service one towards Ronaldo than being the number nine. That's ultimately why I think he chose to leave was because he wanted the role that he has now. There is pressure that comes with that, obviously. And I think the other thing to, to pull away slightly is we've become so accepting of the numbers that people like Ronaldo and Messi put up that we almost take that as the norm now when really it's not. It's frighteningly high, those numbers that they record. And so we see players that maybe record what would have been respectable tallies 10, 15 years ago as almost subpar, whereas really he's doing kind of what you would expect. And I think this is a, a direct correlation with the fact that fees have risen to, to frightening new highs as well. Mm. Um, I think for him, it, it is very much down to him. Um, and I think it's almost about breaking away from what he was, which was someone who supported his teammates to being someone that says, actually, it's about me. And, and having that, I know it's an intangible, but almost that, that killer streak that you see with someone like Alan Shearer, who, you know, I, I remember him stealing a penalty off a young striker once, um, even though I think he already had a hat-trick at that point. So it's, yeah, it's, I think that's where he's at at the minute. It's interesting. Of course, uh, when you compare him to Messi Ronaldo, as you say, he falls short of that yardstick. Yet, yeah, it's probably more appropriate to compare him to his peers. Romelu Lukaku also on 10 goals alongside Morata in the league this season, falling short, of course, of Harry Kane, who is the league's top scorer as it stands with 18. The expected goals for each individual player, um, they do that for strikers quite often. A lot of people release those charts. And for a long time this season, uh, Morata has been massively overachieving in terms of the actual shots he's able to get away. And while I don't necessarily watch a ton of Chelsea, so maybe, I don't know, he could be doing more to uh, to create chances for himself. I think Chelsea have been relatively anemic, even in their title-winning year, in terms of creating chances. They've relied a lot on the fact that they're able to break from midfield and do those sort of things. So I think it could be down to, to sort of a tactical thing with Chelsea because they've never been the Manchester City in, t in terms of creating chances. I actually have the chart right here. So um, the, the highest at the top of the chart in terms of uh, expected goals, um, personal expected goals, is Harry Kane with 14.57. Uh, and he's obviously scored 17. So then we'll scroll all the way down here to... I can find him. Alvaro Morata, who has scored 10 goals, but with an expected goal of expected goal uh, chance total of uh, 7.43. And I know at one point it was um, it was similar to that, and he had scored a uh, quite a bit more than 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 what he is expected to. So I think, you know, I, I've heard a lot of criticism of Morata as a player, and I think he's actually really good. And I think um, Chelsea are just a, a really defensive team that don't necessarily give their players that many uh, you know, quality opportunities. Obviously, that was a little bit different in the Arsenal game because he had some one-on-ones and he missed them. But you know, to judge a player completely on, on one game or, or one set of, uh, set of misses isn't entirely representative of that. And I think a deeper look into maybe how he plays and how Chelsea plays is, 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 a, is a good thing. 
Fair. We should. Uh, we probably should talk about Arsenal, though. Um, no team has recovered more points from losing positions in the Premier League than Arsenal this season. Uh, that's equal with Everton, 12 points. Uh, I find it difficult, though, Nico, to credit their fighting spirit when they seemingly contrive to find themselves in these losing it's positions. Like a zero fan. Well, no, I just... They seem to... to <laughs> I think it was Daniel Story's article on Football 365 I was reading earlier today. They, they contrive to snatch defeat from the jaws of a draw is how he put it they seem to put themselves in these very difficult positions so how can we give them too much credit for for getting back from positions they shouldn't be in yeah i 100 agree with that and i think um i don't know it's difficult because arsenal especially this season and that's kind of maybe one of the things that they suffer from as a, as a club is that when they do anything outside of what you know, they, they normally do, or rather, you know, they're not really allowed to stray out. They're not really allowed to be covered in any different way because the coverage of them has been so consistent for the number, for a number of years, like Manchester city's coverage has massively changed because they've had different managers. They've had a ton of different players and the same thing goes for pretty much any other club in the top six, but you know, Arsenal are stuck on this or, or shielded rather by this same old narrative storyline of Arsene Wenger and what he does when, you know, they actually do have a massive change in play sometimes from year to year. Um, and the same thing goes for them this year. Like you're saying, they take, they are a team that has come back from a lot of, uh, you know, one nil down or two nil downs because they are pretty bad in defense, but they have an amazing attack. I mean, to create what they did against Manchester United, which up until that point was a pretty decently proficient defensive team. I mean, was incredible. And even against us and against other teams, I mean, they beat Tottenham. Um, they've created a lot of chances because their attack is so good. And that's kind of how they structure their play. The difficulty with that is that it's so lopsided that it does leave their defenders on an island, similar to how um, Jurgen Klopp's system does to some extent. Their defenders are forced to make plays. And unfortunately, um, as you mentioned, I think pre-record, they've had a lot of defensive changes. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the same guys in there week in and week out. And so when you have the combination of maybe not necessarily the best defenders in the world in conjunction with the fact that the system kind of puts those defenders on an island and you're going to concede a lot of goals, but at the same time, they're scoring a ton of goals because that that you know triumvirate of Mezzarazzo, Alexis Sanchez, and Lacazette is I mean is, is amazing in and of itself. But then you have other players adding to that like like Bellerin and and uh, their their new youth player who has impressed me in every single game that that I've seen him in. I'm just forgetting his name right now. So it, it, Arsenal is actually a really interesting team to watch. It's just that we're constantly mired down by this will Arsene Wenger leave or not a thing that we we kind of don't pay attention to their play I just obviously score a lot of goals you said that I think they had 14 shots uh, last night against Chelsea um, which is an incredibly high amount even though they are the home team but as we're talking about they ship a lot of goals as well uh, they Arsene has been rotating his defence constantly this season Kristen um, I think it was the 10th different defensive combination in 22 Premier League games this season holding Mustafi and Chambers in defence. Maybe not Alvaro Morata, as we've discussed, but an attack of the quality of Eden Hazard is certainly going to fancy himself against that back three. Wenger's rotation, as I mentioned there, perhaps doesn't help, but does this system even suit Arsenal, given the personnel Wenger has at his disposal? Um, the, the thing is with Wenger, he, he's long been accused, and in fairness, I've been one of the people that have said it myself, that he went from an innovator to someone who was bordering on tactically stubborn because he would only really play 4-2-3-1. Occasionally he would pull, pull Ozil back and deem it a 4-3-3, but it was only that in name, realistically. 
I think the back three is an attempt by him to show some versatility. And for that reason, I'm almost loath to criticise him for that because I think it can be difficult when you're as long standing in the game as he is to uh, change and adapt, if it, if it, especially if it doesn't feel genuine. Um, at the time, the back three, when he started to implement it, had had a real resurgence in the Premier League. It's not the first time someone's used it. I remember Glenn Hoddle with Swindon doing it years and years ago. Um, and even with England, I think he did it a few times as well, actually using a, a back three and wing backs. Um, I think it felt like the right thing to do, but I question if it was the best use of players. Um, they aren't blessed with a, a real uh, wealth of quality centre-backs, Arsenal. They've got some very good wing backs, um, I, I still have major issues with Bellerin, even though I know he scored the equaliser. Um, I don't like him when he's defending. I think Monreal is very good by the same uh, consequence. The problem with that is you have certain Kolasinac in there as well, and you can't play two left wing backs. Um, I mean, you can, but it's not advised. Uh, so I think, yeah, it, it's it's clearly not the best fit. And I'm surprised that in the summer he didn't try and sign more players so that they could facilitate that back three. If anything, he seemed to get rid of the players that could have, um, the likes of Gabriel, people like that, who he deemed not good enough. Um, I think he needs to not pick a single identity to, to tie himself to, but I think in general that squad needs to have a build-up or make-up so that it can present more versatility on the field on the field from a tactical standpoint. Because to me, at this precise moment, it is very limited in the way that ways it can play, um, both in terms of uh, you know short and long, etc., but also formation. Um, finally, on this game, we should probably pay lip service to uh, what I thought was a surprising debate uh, that seemed to erupt after the game about whether it was a penalty for, against Eden Hazard. Bellerin uh, caught the Belgians' foot. I mean, I thought it was obviously a penalty. Am I wrong in saying that, Nico? I did not see the incident. Chris? Uh, yeah, it was a penalty. 100%. Yeah, yeah, I thought so, yeah. If you agree with me, that's enough for me. Um, let's move on to talk about uh, what else we got this week. Ah, Stoke. Stoke losing 1-0 against Newcastle. Chris uh, putting Mark Hughes' position into even further jeopardy. Uh, Stoke have now conceded the most goals in Europe's top five leagues. They've got the joint third worst goal difference in Europe's top five leagues. Not exactly going particularly well. Um, coming in for a lot of criticism, Mark Hughes, for resting players against Chelsea. Apparently, in some master plan to beat Newcastle, it didn't exactly work out. Uh, and the question now seems to be when as to if he'll be sacked. Yeah, he he took a little bit of offence, it seemed, to people questioning him afterwards and pointing to the fact that Rafa Benitez, for example, had made changes. The problem was, or the key difference, I think, between Stoke's game before and Newcastle's game before was that Benitez didn't say at any point um, you know, I think we'll win this game. That was the thing I think that shot Hughes in the foot was that he said, I made these changes with a view to winning this Newcastle game, which I think we will do. And that set a pressure up against him. And and I think, look, the other problem is when you actually watch that game and, and Elliot, who uh, was there in the posh seats, um, even though he is a, a humble young man from, from Stoke. Um, Elliot Hackney from Bear Pit TV, just in case you... you yeah, you good friend away. of ours. Um he made the point that the performance was so lacking. And I completely agree. For, from Stoke's end, it just 
it had no fire to it at all. They moved the ball really slowly. Um, they started with Crouch up front, and I think it became very apparent that realistically the, the aim was to get the ball to him in the air and see what could be done with it. That got more and more uh, desperate as time moved on. And, and look, Stoke did fashion some chances off the back of it, no denying that. Um, there was a great save from Carl Darlow from Chupa Morting, a similar one from Mami Berendouf, I think, after Newcastle had gone ahead. And so if you were a supporter of Hughes, you would say, well, you know what? We created chances. There was just an inspired goalkeeper in, in the sticks. You can't uh, you know, legislate for that necessarily. You can't uh, blame Hughes for that, at least. I think you have to look at the minutes before those chances, before Newcastle's goals, to see a team that looked really like it didn't have the greatest idea of what it was trying to do. And, and if anybody embodied that sort of apathy, it was Jordan Shakiri because for a player that for me, I was worried about speaking as a Newcastle fan just for a second. I was worried about facing him because he's a great player and he scored at St. James's with a really nice goal as well. It just looked so disinterested the entire game. He didn't really do much. There was an instance where he didn't even bother chasing a long ball and put Mankio under pressure. And he was ultimately swapped out for Juve, who had a much better game. And I think that, for me, is the problem, is that when the difference makers you have, which in Stokes' case is definitely Zerdan Shakiri, aren't performing, don't look interested, all of these kind of things, that, to me, says that there's something wrong in the relationship between the manager and the players. Um, he's had a good amount of money, but hasn't been able to push them forward. You look at Berahino, you look at Wimmer as another good example of just money wasted. There's over $30 million in player there spent between the two of them and neither look great for, for Stoke. Yeah, certainly isn't getting the best out of the players, uh, Nico. It's uh, a difficult situation for Stoke now because it feels like they've almost acted too late. We've spoken before about the likes of Hodgson, Allardyce, not the most inspiring appointments, of course, but they can be effective. Uh, now, if Stoke are looking around for a replacement for Hughes, I mean, the options, uh, the favourites, I should say, that are uh, apparently in line now are the likes of Roberto Mancini, Martin O'Neill, uh, the Republic of Ireland manager, Ronald Koeman, Steve McLaren. Again, not the most inspiring appointments and you wouldn't really trust them necessarily to, to sort out Stoke's glaring weakness, which is that defence. Yeah, I mean, like you're saying there, the managerial market is not rife with candidates that I think would inspire a great deal of confidence and sort of turning Stoke's situation around. Um, at the same time, I think there are plenty of opportunities to be given to coaches that maybe we don't know about. Um, but you're, you're right in saying that maybe the, the, the candidates you know, are not you know, <laughs> falling at the feet of Stoke City because it's, it's a project that doesn't necessarily seem to have um, all of their thoughts in one place. So I think Stoke have to be put in a difficult position here because on the one hand, they can stick with the same. They've stuck with Mark Hughes through periods where it's been extremely difficult, and he's seemingly turned it around because he's been relatively consistent with the club. But at the same time, I think Stoke are in a really interesting situation because while they're not near the relegation battle consistently, they're not necessarily in danger of going down most years. This like this seems the year this seems to be the year where he can't necessarily turn these results around. And not only that, but the underlying numbers beneath that seem to show that Stoke are indeed quite bad. So 
it's it's more about you know that that pro- probably Chris could say it better than I I will, but it's more that saying that you know it's it's better the devil you know than the one you that you don't that I think uh, plagues Stoke City right now. Uh, I also don't think, and I th- I think this might be something that Elliot's touched on as well. I don't think their owner is is that open to um, getting rid of him either, um, because I think as Nico alluded to there. For him, it is very much a case of better the devil, you know. And and you look at the pool of candidates, there's not really anyone that jumps out there. And without wishing to disparage Peter Court, who I think has put a lot into the club, I don't sense he has the time or the inclination to carry a very deep um, knowledge and wealth of, of left field coaches, if you will, in inver- inverted commas. Yeah, currently in the bottom three now, Stoke in 17th place, but just five points behind Watford, who are in 10th. So things very tight in that bottom half of the table. Be interesting to see if Stoke stick or twist in an attempt to get out of relegation trouble. Uh, one manager who will be keeping his job, though, or will be staying in his job, I should say, is Jose Mourinho. In case you missed it this morning in the English press, there are reports doing the round that Manchester United are fearing that he could resign at the end of the season. He's reportedly cutting an increasingly detached figure at Old Trafford, with one observer remarking that Jose seems to be be having third-season syndrome a year early at Manchester United. Um, Obviously, there was some pressure recently, Nico. uh, Four games without a win for Manchester United. Of course, that defeats Bristol City and three Premier League draws in a row. Uh, The pressure somewhat allayed by that win over Everton and and a reasonably positive performance but uh, Jose Mourinho coming out today to suggest it's all rubbish there's no way he's leaving Manchester United yeah apparently so I mean the 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 tabloids are making their rounds and suggesting that he's unhappy at Manchester United and I don't think he's necessarily done much to 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 come out I mean besides coming out and saying that that wasn't true um I think his actions in, in the past couple of weeks haven't uh, have certainly fueled that fire, and that's that's the difficulty with it. Is that when you sit in the media and complain about your players, you complain about the the backing that you supposedly don't have. Uh, you complain about the refereeing decisions. You complain about. Let's see what else he complained about. Um, you you just complain about everything. Then I think, given the fact that maybe some of these institutions aren't the most, um, I don't know, moral. When it comes to, to talking about you know transfer news or transfer speculation or things that managers say, I don't necessarily blame them when you're just sitting there bitching for I don't know how many weeks about I don't know what. When you are the manager of Manchester United, you spent X amount of money on brilliant players, um, and you you still just come up with excuses as to why nothing is ever your fault, Jose Mourinho. So <laughs> that is that is the issue, doesn't I, it? I don't, Everyone else is to, to blame, fair, Chris. I I don't necessarily see it through that. Uh, Lens, I think for me what this is, this is arguably Mourinho's greatest test because when he arrived in the Premier League, he was this young upstart and it was Sir Alex Ferguson that he had to go against. He was this institution of, of English football or rapidly becoming this institution of English football at least who had won so many things, had almost batted down pretty much most of his rivals. Finger had obviously had a brief success, but again, it was, it was Ferguson that, that took the title. Um, and he came in and he he won it with Chelsea back to back and now he's sitting in a position where he is almost that Ferguson-like figure not with one club but with Real Madrid with Inter Milan it's the instantaneous nature of Jose Mourinho that he comes and he wins that's what he does he doesn't stay long 
I think Jonathan Wilson said it once, he's like Cleopatra, he very much kind of pulls the root out with the plant when he leaves, but he does so having left you trophies. Um, I think the the problem is, is that now he has to try and reinvent when that's not really been what he's been about in terms of his methodology as a football coach tactically has been very simple. It's been about stifling the opposition. It's been about killing them. You look into his his victory over Pep. That was about stifling Barcelona. It wasn't about outplaying them or outdoing them. He he is very Machiavellian in that sense. And there comes a point where he has reached now that that for almost everybody watching, Guardiola is building this beautiful thing that almost has an answer for every question that Mourinho usually poses. So he has to go away and try and reinvent, having never really had to do that before in his entire career. And I think this is the problem, is that his his approach and his desires are often at ends with each other and at odds with each other. Because for a long time, he's talked about wanting to have this long legacy with one club and be somewhere for a while. But that doesn't fit with how he's attained success. He's attained success by very short-term measures. And so for him to last the course at a club, not only would he have to adapt those measures, I think he'd have to do probably what Ferguson does, which or what Ferguson did, excuse me, which was to change his coaching staff a lot. Do you, do you really think he has to reinvent? Do you really think he has to reinvent, though? Because I think I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, but I think this is Jose Mourinho's reaction to coming up against what I think we'll see in a couple of years is a historically great Manchester City team. And I think regardless of all the chat about how mm, Pep Guardiola has an open checkbook and he you know, had access to resources that Mourinho didn't, which I think is complete BS, I, I definitely see what you're saying in terms of Jose Mourinho needs to go back to the drawing board to some extent, but he has achieved, you know, league success in a major way before he's achieved historic point totals and historic, you know, uh, goal totals with Real Madrid and I think Chelsea before. So, I mean, I, I think this is personally just his reaction to him finally getting the job that he as a, as, you know, as a, as a personal human being always strived for. And then when he got there, his greatest rival at the very top of his game besting him in in each and every way i don't understand i don't understand the point you're trying to make though well, well i'm saying you th- do you think he that 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 what i'm saying is true that that it's simply him being bested and this is re- his reaction or do you think it's a genuine belief of his that he doesn't hasn't had access to the same resources and that he genuinely believes the stuff that he's saying or is it a deflection tactic is it you know him saying different things just to, to just to get it off his his back in some sense i think realistically it's probably a blending of the two because i think Yes, it's very easy to clutch to the fact that, you know, he's only had 300 million and, you know, uh, Guardiola's had 360 or 70. People like Duncan Castles will throw that into the ring as being this huge influential moment. But realistically, that 60 or 70 million buys you, what, one super high quality player? I don't think that is the difference. The problem I think Mourinho has at his core is that he knows deep down that he has to change things up. And that's why I think he has to almost take that, that, approach that Ferguson did which was to swap out so you had uh, Carlos Kiros at one point you had Rene Mullenstein people that had different ideas that could push forward and adapt the ideas that you had and almost test your ideas sometimes and not be afraid to test your ideas because I've spoken to to people in the past who've worked with Sir Alex Ferguson and said the greatest thing he ever taught was delegation and knowing when and what to delegate 
And the problem that Mourinho has is that because he's been so entrenched in what he's done, now that someone has an answer for it in Guardiola, because he's had that similar time period or length of time to defy his ideas, you can almost take the the element of, of financial backing away from it. Because I think if, if Guardiola did have this Man United squad, I think they would win the league because it's about the quality that he brings. And so that's where I think there is a small part of Mourinho that throws this in there because it does deflect a little bit from what he's trying to do. But I think at its core, what he has to do, and I think what he knows and almost realises now, is that he has to move forward in some way that's different to what he's done before. Because what he did before is no longer working for a few different reasons. Least of all because Guardiola has the answers, and least of all because I think football's moved along. You have to remember that he won the... The Champions League with Porto and those t- titles with Chelsea over a decade ago now. And that is a long time in football. And I think we forget that sometimes because it moves at such a quick pace. We forget how elongated time is when it comes to, to football and achievement. Perfect, Perfectly said, Chris. Very well. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Right, let's move on to part two then. It's some transfer chat, etc. Um, you guys already talked about Coutinho and the impending move, I assume, to, to Barcelona on Monday's podcast. Am I right in saying that, Nico? Yeah, a little bit. Lawrence and I went back and forth yeah. about, the, um, about that. The latest is 150 million euros. It's going to happen, according to the Times. So we'll see if that pans out. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Virgil van Dijk, though. I don't know if you guys chatted about that at length. I just... I just want to get your thoughts on the the, the fee. Hundreds, seventy-five million pounds, the most expensive defender in history. I think I saw some of your tweets, Nico, saying, you know, ah, let's not talk about this. It's not important. Is that what I said? Is that is? Are you quoting me <laughs> I, verbatim? I, I may be paraphrasing slightly. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I think I mentioned it on Monday's podcast as well. I, like, I, and just maybe this piggybacks off the last point Chris was making about um, the difference between Guardiola and Mourinho in terms of uh, spending and, and what they have spent. Is that you know, given the fact that player transfers are not usually very rarely decided especially at the top level um decided by the player's skill set alone um you know comparing player to player you know how much a manager has spent on on players is i think maybe inadequate because maybe they're in a different position if you look at manchester united versus manchester city for example in the past summer manchester city two days after the season ended, had no fullbacks. So at that point in time, every club in Europe that had available fullbacks or fullbacks that Manchester City probably wanted, they were going to hike up that price. 
that was a different situation for Manchester United or another team within top six because they at least had some fullbacks. So the price is completely or dictated by those kind of situations. Um, and I think the same sort of thing goes for Van Dyke. This is a January transfer. This is a situation where Liverpool clearly have some uh, perceived issue with their defense. So teams who have available defenders are going to hike up that price if Liverpool are interested in. Um, and also, like I mentioned on Monday's podcast, the money in football is not just football money anymore. It's money from commercial entities. It's money from, you know, other things that we are just beginning to understand, you know, political statements are being made with the, with certain transfers and it's something far bigger than football. So for me, the, the, the fee is irrelevant, but does the, or the fee is irrelevant to talk about in terms of uh, Virgil van Dyke's skill at the same time. And I think Chris made uh, this point either in an article or, or a tweet. This is something that will, um, definitely affect our perception of what Virgil van Dijk is expected to do at Liverpool, which is the difficult thing for him because he has no control over that. But at the same time, um, you know, this is the first time a defender has gone for this sum. And I think it's a really difficult position to put a defender in because if you buy an attacker for that and they don't necessarily perform at the very least, you know, they don't perform for a little bit and you're a little bit disappointed in terms of their output. Um, but with a defender, if they're not performing, that usually means that they're conceding. So not only do you have, or they're allowing the concession of goals. So not only do you have like them not performing, you have a literal palpable negative effect on the team. So for for defenders to be going for this much, not that I have any sort of issue with it, I think com you know complicates the situation even further because of our expectation of what defenders are supposed to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have an issue with the fee in terms of Liverpool's apparent hip hypocrisy with taking issue with the way Barcelona are going about the Coutinho transfer unsettling their own player when you know their own conduct wasn't exactly exemplary in the summer themselves trying to get Van Dijk from Southampton which caused that club to make a complaint and again you know that, that getting him in January has probably driven up the price they should have gotten him six months ago etc but I mean even on the pitch does he does he solve all the issues for Liverpool Nico? Yeah, I, I wrote something on this earlier in the year, um, specifically mentioning Van Dyke after Liverpool had seemingly not, or they didn't get him at the time, but obviously they, they prolonged that to January. Um, I would say Liverpool, or rather Virgil Van Dyke will be more of an offensive weapon to Liverpool than he will be a defensive one, because as I've talked about before on this podcast, um, Liverpool's main uh, avenue of creating transition, which is how they create offense, is by presenting space to an opposition which they can supposedly take advantage of and then compressing that space really quickly. And uh, Virgil van Dijk is one of the best defenders in the air. And I think in those situations where a team will, uh, you know, uh, play a long ball so that Liver they can expose Liverpool, but then Liverpool compress that space. I think he'll be especially helpful in those situations. He'll be especially helpful when it comes to pressing a team and, and doing those sort of things. But will it fix all of the issues that Liverpool have defensively? Certainly not, because as we talked about before, Liverpool put their defenders on an island, and that that's the difficult thing about it. And Simon Mignolet is still there. <laughs> but that's, yeah, uh, and they have uh, not-so-great goalkeepers. Yeah. So. Uh, let's talk about Chelsea briefly. I mentioned earlier they've been linked with a couple of players in the January transfer window so far. Uh, Ross Barkley, one of those names. Chris, he was set to join Chelsea in the summer. Uh, apart I can hear you crying at him. Yeah, well, not so much. I mean, Ross Barkley's a decent player. I'd like to have him at Spurs, but Chelsea, apparently the front runners, they're going to sign him for £15 million, according to the Daily Mail. Um, what does he exactly bring to Chelsea, Chris? Is he really filling a, a void that they're, they're needing to fill at the moment? That's a very good question. And, and 
My initial response is, is no, probably, um, because I don't see what that void is. I mean, assuming he's part of a three-man midfield, because I don't think Conte would trust him as part of it too. I think that's always going to be someone like Drinkwater, Bakayoko, Canton, and sort of scrub one out depending on on which game you're you're playing. I mean, you also have Fabregas in there as well, obviously, who has occasionally played played a little bit deeper um, when when Conte has. Um, going for that three-five-two. I look at the fact that they have uh, Ethan Ampadu again, who has got decent reviews when he's played this season, um, and even Charlie Masonda, who signed a new contract. I know he's a bit more of a wide player than a, a central attacking midfielder, but it does kind of leave me wondering where he fits in because I don't genuinely, I don't see a spot for him. Uh, I know that that. Barkley's been talked about as someone in the past with positional versatility and I believe he has played across the midfield positions from from left to right um, but it just strikes me as a bizarre one this it, it sounds like signing for the sake of signing um, in that same story they talk about an inquiry for Andy Carroll as well which to me sounds like a contingency <laughs> for the fact they couldn't get Lorente in the summer yeah, I was going to say um, speaking of bizarre Andy Carroll yeah yeah, I mean, I think what I would say about that one, that almost makes a little bit more sense. Mm. Because I think when you look at that, they've got Batshuayi, who reportedly has been told he can find uh, new employment in January. I don't know if that's on loan or permanent. So you're looking at, realistically, Alvaro Morata is the sort of sole leading forward. There's not, um, to my knowledge, anyone that plays as a... Uh, a centre forward Hazard can play as a false nine I mean even Fabregas can if he uses his time with Spain as an example but no real sort of backup number nine and Carroll is a very different profile to someone like Morata he is the kind of person that you throw on and, and can get get you something in the air as he showed for, for West Ham against uh, West Brom earlier in the week so that makes a little bit more sense because it seems to me almost as if Conte is building uh, some versatility into his strike force um, because I don't think um, there's any recall option with Tammy Abraham in there. I'd be amazed if there was um, because I think Swansea are a bit smarter than that. Yeah. So that makes more sense. Barkley, yeah, your guess is as good as mine on that one. Um, I think I think realistically it's a, it's a huge, if not the final opportunity for him to sort of realise or actualise his potential because you know, you, I don't think you're going to go up from here. Let's put it that way. Um, and so, yeah, that that one does surprise me a little bit. I, I'd be curious as well to see what knock-on effect that has to um, the squad in terms of the fact that Osonda, for example, might now seek a loan move. I know that uh, Kennedy, who can play out wide on the left but has been used more as a wing-back, has been linked with a move to, to Newcastle and yeah, I think the fact that it's not obvious what his role is for this Chelsea team when he when he potentially signs, that makes then saying, well, you know, is Kennedy and Masanda now allowed to leave a little bit harder to predict? Yeah, uh, a lukewarm reaction, shall we say, to the news from Chelsea fans that Ross Barkley might be joining. Uh, the good news for them, though, is that The Guardian reporting that Thibaut Courtois and Eden Hazard are close to signing contract extensions. So at least there's that. Um, Arsenal have made a signing guys they've signed the greek defender let's try not to butcher this konstantinos movrapanos 
Uh, I think I got that about right. Um, apparently going straight back out on loan, the 20-year-old defender. Um, so perhaps not the most exciting signing for Arsenal fans, although they might be a little bit more excited by the fact that uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is apparently on Arsene Wenger's radar. Sky in Italy are reporting that he is Arsenal's first choice to replace Alexis Sanchez. Uh, is this a realistic chain of events, do you think, Nico? Sanchez to City, Aubameyang to Arsenal? As far as Aubameyang to Arsenal, I don't know about that because I think he's had his sights set on Real Madrid for quite a while. He has some sort of story about his grandfather wanting him to play in Spain. So I think if he does go anywhere, it will be either Barcelona or Real Madrid. Um, as far as Alexis to City goes, I think that's a definite possibility at this point given everything that's been said about it and given the fact that Gabriel Jesus has suffered uh, an MCL injury, unfortunately, so that's going to keep him out for a little bit, even though he, I think he is being a little bit more positive about it on his personal social medias. But yeah, I mean, as far as, like I said, as far as uh, Aubameyang going to Arsenal, I don't see it as a particularly inviting destination <laughs> when uh, Real Madrid could be on the table. So, Finally on Arsenal, uh, this is an interesting one. Theo Walcott could apparently be on the verge of a return to Southampton, Chris. Um, not really a first-team player this season for Arsenal. He hasn't started a game for the club since April. Could it be time for him to uh, to return to the South Coast? Um, yeah, why not? Um, I, I don't. I don't think he progresses any further with with Arsenal. Mm. Um, I think at the same time. He he's been linked to a few different teams. I think West Ham is another one. He fits into this weird sort of middle line where he's not a striker, but he's not a winger either in the conventional sense. I don't see him tracking back. It's for a bit nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think a club like Southampton could be good for him because I think they play that type of position um, where you know, say him and Buffal sit off Charlie Austin and almost float around him. Um, I know Austin's injured, but I'm just picking a striker for arguments. It could be Gabbiadini. Um So, yeah, I, th- I think that positionally seems to work better for him. It's a nice chance to return home as well, um, because I think, honestly, with Arsenal, he's just floating into nothingness. I don't think he gets any better. I don't think he improves. I also don't think he has the confidence of the supporter base or even Arsene Wenger at this point. It, as, as cruel and callous as it might sound, we've reached that stage where we have to say that that. Theo Walcott has failed potential. That's that's ultimately what he is. He's not what he looked like when he burst through as a 16-year-old at Southampton. Yeah. And I think there is an interesting discussion to be had at some point about the fact that really only Gareth Bale has come out of that club and achieved potential that was, was set out for them, or in his case, massively exceeded it. Um, and what that says about either you know the players themselves, the clubs they joined, etc., but I think knowing when to cut your losses in the case of Walcott is, is yeah, it's a, it's a good thing to do for him right now. If you want to succeed, go to Spurs, not Arsenal. Um, let's finish up there, guys. Let's wrap up Thursday's podcast. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, before we go, Chris, obviously, uh, you went to see Star Wars tonight instead of watching West Ham Spurs. I mean, what's wrong with you for one? But two, what were your thoughts on the film? Because it's been a very controversial reception. I'd be intrigued to, to see what you thought of it. Uh, I I really enjoyed it, but I don't think I came into it with perhaps the cynicism attached that, that some... I thought it had a lot of different narrative threads that it tried to weave together, and I think they, they differed in a variety of ways so that they could appeal to a more mass audience, which is a bit of a 
uh, a thing for Disney to do. You know, it's, it's very much a Disney-type approach to telling a grand story. Yes, I think it was quite a, a long movie. I don't think too long. Um, and I think for me personally, while there were slight elements that maybe felt a little bit forced, I thought the humour what didn't always really land like it should have. Ultimately, I think it delivered the core message, the very um, the nut, if you will, of Star Wars and its its message and its ideology and and its its key moral in a very sincere way. Um, ultimately, and in a way that felt true to what had come before it, which. I think ultimately is all you can ask for with this. Oh, a wonderfully eloquent little mini review there. You don't need movie podcasts, guys. Just come to the front free. We do it all. Movie chat, football chat. Uh, Nico, what did you? Uh, what do you think? I'm an extremely cynical person uh, when it comes to Star Wars movies and really most things. Oh, yeah. um, so I did. So I did enjoy it to some extent. At the same time, I think the series, especially the newer movies, massively suffer from the fact that they are Star Wars movies, so they have to carry this sense of, you know, history and, and nostalgia to, to please the older fans but also garner a new crowd. Um, I think the inter- the most interesting dynamic, and we were kind of talked about this before, um, is the one between Kylo Ren and Rey. Um, and I was listening to the Bill Simmons podcast, and he had on Brian Cranston, and they were talking about how uh, Walter White's character development from Breaking Bad was probably one of the best and most unique in, in cinema and film history because you have Walter White, who at the beginning of Breaking Bad is a genuinely good person, but then by the end, you know, in the final episode, he admits that he was doing the things that he was doing, the terrible things that he was doing, he's doing them for himself, and it was a very selfless, selfish action as opposed to supposedly selfless, and I think you have a similar dynamic with Kylo Ren um, because you have someone that is, is, is ashamed or, or in some way wants to erase their past, uh, sort of in a Hitler-esque way, but but we're introduced to him as sort of a uh, an innocent, more, a more innocent party. Um, but but you have this person who is uh, turning objectively evil. You know, they killed their father. Uh, they almost killed their mother. Um, and and they're erasing whatever uh, narrative that they don't want to see. Um, so I think that's really interesting. But at the same time, a lot of it is is mired in like the what is it, the the marketing that Star Wars needs to entail. So I feel like the last 45 minutes was uh, just an advertisement for the video game. Um, there was, you know, a commentary on capitalist society, which I agree with. Um, but they only gave it like 15 minutes. And then Disney saying something about capitalism is like pot calling the kettle black. So, um, and uh, what else? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was, there were good and bad parts. And I, I think there is a way to, there is a correct way to finish it off. Um, and I hope they do that. So. It's it's interesting. I was uh, just fascinated by the response to the film. There seems to be quite a lot of negative reaction to it. Whereas I I think there's a lot to process when you go and see. It. I'm a big Star Wars guy, you know, mainly the original trilogy, less so the prequels. But I think it took some very interesting and bold choices with the characters, with the storyline. And as you say, I'm very interested to see how they're going to resolve it in Episode Nine because we literally have no idea where it's going now um but like i say guys there you go that is a movie review podcast football analysis what more could you want let us know uh what you thought star wars let us know what you thought of this week's football on twitter at the front free do leave your reviews for the podcast on itunes click on the link in the description to rate and review the front free to be in your chance to be in whole of the week winning that lovely box of ferrero rocher for now though we'll see you on monday we'll be back to review some of the fa cup action over here until then chris where can the good people where can the whole find you uh at k-h-e-n-e-g-e oh very good nika 
You can find me on Twitter at Nico underscore O Morales if you fancy reading my newest piece, which is about goalkeepers. Ah, very good. Uh, guys, go and check it out. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood. Until Monday, have a bloody great weekend. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.